0: Tenakoto, Tenakotu, Tenakotu, Katua in Maori, welcome all you guys, especially the four people who are here for the first time tonight. So if things go pear-shaped tonight, it's probably Gerard or Kathy's fault, and I'll tell you why, because um, I'm going to do something a bit interactive, and that's because Gerard told me it was a good idea. Where is it? (laughs) Wherever you are. (laughs) And also, I'd prepared a fairly scholarly uh, talk, as people do nicely, in a folder like a grown-up. And last night, I was talking to my beautiful friend, Kathy Hubank. We were talking about things, and I said, oh, I was at the worrying about my hair stage, which means you're probably kind of ready to give the talk. And she said to me, so what's the most important word? Because the title of my talk tonight is the dharma in my life, my life in the dharma. And I didn't have any idea which was the most important word, but she said it was my. And I realized that the talk I'd written, basically, was quite a quite a sensible Buddhist talk. Most of you would have heard quite a bit of it before and it wasn't really my. So I've changed tack completely, so bear with me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think they always say start with a joke, but I'm gonna start with a poem and some of you will have heard this poem and some of you will not have. Me, could we ask people to sit comfortably? Sit comfortably, please <laughs> sit comfortably. <laughs> the more comfortably you can sit, the better it will be. So this is an old poem of mine that, that Ross encouraged me to write and it's still a good place to start if we're talking about my life in the Dharma and the Dharma in my life. In the world. In the strange early morning half-light we sit. In the cloudiness of our questioning we sit. In our madness and our clarity we sit. In the midst of too much to do we sit. In the warm arms of our shared sorrow we sit. In community and in loneliness we sit. In sweet exhaustion we sit. In the blazing energy of being alive we sit. Here with the singing crickets, here with the electric bird song here with the rippling of breezes and the dry grasses here with the cobwebs and the clouds and the dusty road upon us us in the sound and the sound in us us in the world and the world in us career highlight for me this poem is in a book called what book buddha poems from beat to hip-hop And Jack Kerouac's in there and Yoko Ono and Trumpa, and like really famous people. (laughs) That's pretty cool. So it would have been easier if Ross had said to me, talk about your life in the Dharma and your Dharma in your life in the last 24 hours. Because I'm 65 years old and I got into Buddhism 40 years ago, so it could be a very long talk if I tried to squash everything into it, but I thought I would start with a bit of personal story about how I got into Buddhism. So I came from Auckland and my family were very creative. My parents were sort of communist for a while there, publishing um, a, a sort of a communist political journal thing and then they became very left wing and they were My father was a printer, and he printed poets and writers and things like that, and they were very bohemian and very intelligent and had fantastic parties, very lively, a lot of creativity. They were also both raving alcoholics, so it was a strange childhood of creativity and warmth and people, but a lot of instability, and basically, when I look back on it now from some kind of psychological perspective, a lot of neglect. It wasn't a a very steady life for a little child, but it had a lot of richness in terms of... Poetry and education was important and books were important But it was sort of the tail end of something pretty ragged for them and when I was about nine my father killed himself and that was also a dreadful thing and we shifted around and things happened and um, The saving grace for me was that I was clever. I was good at school So what was happening in my life was very creative and creative and wild, but in my my escape was books and writing and going to school and being good at geography, French history, maths, and whatever. And um, that was something I, I learned to do. And so that was my early life. And then, um, what to tell you? I became a school teacher and I shifted to Sydney. And Sydney to me was like New York. And I was doing the sex, drugs, rock and roll thing in Sydney and working for Dr. Bernardo's with damaged children like Durr. And still smoking lots of pot. I forgot to mention that one of my other escape routes was um, drugs. And also I should have probably said that although my parents were fantastic, they certainly didn't have um, sila, which in Buddhism is called the precepts. So don't kill things, don't steal, um, you know, keep good sexual boundaries and don't do drugs and alcohol. Um, They didn't have that. And there was also no support for spirituality in my family because my father was very... Intellectual. I'm sorry, it's, I'm going to swear, but I remember my sister wanted to become a Quaker and he banged his hand down on the table very forcefully and he was Irish. There's no such fucking thing as fucking God. Okay. So it was really, that was not promulgated in, in my family whatsoever, ever. And when I became vegetarian, I can remember cooking, some of you might remember TVP, it's like soy protein. And I'd made something and uh, my brother-in-law said... Looks like dog shit bridge, tastes like dog shit too. So didn't get much support for any of my kind of veerings towards a more or that sort of a lifestyle. And um, never, I remember when I did get married in a Buddhist community, which we will get to, my sister gave me some money. She said, don't give it to the Buddhists. Like they were a weird cult or something. Okay, so I'm in Sydney, I'm hanging out. But I I had done one retreat in New Zealand, even though I was a pot-smoking sort of mess. I'd gone on this retreat. I can't remember the teacher. I remember I was in a tent. It was in the South Island. We are talking 40 years ago. And two things I do remember. One is a ute came in. It was very Kiwi-style with... Food on it, you know, boxes of cabbages and watermelons, and a rather plumptious woman on top who was the cook sort of waved out. And she was the most amazingly good cook. When it was cold, there was hot chocolate, and when it was hot, there was iced peppermint tea. And so I sort of got a feel for the fact that food could be a spiritual practice, that that was sort of part of something. And also, I remember just one very strange thing. I was probably, you know, smoking dope in my tent, knowing me, but um, there was this bird sound, and it was like, ah! <coughs> And it was something, like other people say, oh, I had a spiritual experience. Well, that to me, in a crazy way, it was about suffering. Because if I didn't know much about anything, I did know a lot about suffering. So as we, most of us know, there were three main things that the Buddha taught. Um, unsatisfactoriness, otherwise trans- dukkha, translated as dis-ease or unsatisfactoriness. There's some other translation I've forgotten. Anicca, the fact that everything changes and not self. So I had a pretty good handle on that unsatisfactoriness thing because my child had been so wobbly. And there was something about that bird that sort of spoke to me in some way. Anyway, long story, but short. I end up in Sydney and one night I came out of the movies and I went into this late night bookshop and I was reading Earth Garden and it said 10-day Buddhist retreat at a place called Wat Buddha Dharma. And I thought, okay, cool, because most of the people I knew who were still doing the... I'd been in a community in New Zealand, the drugs, alcohol thing. I thought, meh. Yeah. But the ones who were kind of getting it together were like starting Buddhist communities and doing meditation and going to Tibet and those important things. And I thought, meh, yeah, I, could, I could go out to this place. And I went to Wat Buddha Dharma and signed up for my first 10-day retreat. And my mind was incredibly restless because for me, an escape from what was actually ever happening was be off in the mind. So I couldn't sit to save myself. And I remember I went to the car park and I said to this guy, you're 30 minutes on a locked road at this place called Wapuradama, it's in the Darug National Park so it's quite hard to get to. Once you're there, you're there. And I said to this guy in the car park, could I get a ride home with you? Look, I just really don't want to do this thing. And he said, I came in on my bicycle. (laughs) So I had to stay. (laughs) And, um, I won't go into too much gory detail here, but I married someone who was living there, who basically, it was almost like an arranged marriage. I didn't know this guy very well. He's a lovely guy, tall, quiet Australian, and he thought he wanted to be a monk, and then he decided he didn't want to be a monk. And Aya Kamar, who some of you may have heard of, she was, she'd started this place. Her name was Ilsa Letterman. She was a beautiful woman, and she later became the nun Aya Kamar. I think she said to John, So you don't want to be a monk, why don't you get married, what about Bridget, she'd do. (laughs) I'm pretty sure it was like that, I think she thought she'd be good, she could run the office and look after kids and cook cook things. So I married John and had a son whose name was Sam Bodhi Field, and for those of you who speak Pali, that's a little pun there, Sam Bodhi means enlightenment. And we lived at Wat Dharma, um, which is a Theravadan Buddhist community. There was a lay community, like lots of people like us who were lay people, was sort of like we built round-earth houses and we cooked for the retreats and we had a veggie garden and we raised the kids communally. And I, I I did that. I looked after the kids in a tent and did them on correspondence school and I helped run the office and I learnt to cook vegetarian food because we also ran retreats, so lots of people came. And it was very Theravada, so the head monk there was called Prakanti Pala and he'd been a forest monk with Ajahn Chah, so it was, a lot of stories about that—what it was like to be a forest monk and how you went round on pindapada with your bowl—and sometimes pe- village people—they were eating crickets, basically. So they, it was just this whole thing. And I learnt all the all the lists that Theravada's have about the ten factors of enlightenment and the five skandhas and the blah blah blah. blah. But it was rich to me. It was rich, and fertile, and of interest because it—it it just made sense. Buddhism made sense of these things about there is inherent unsatisfactoriness. We're all born, we're going to get sick and die in the end. I I think I forgot to tell you, when I was 22, my mother also died of an alcohol-related thing. So I knew, and my sister had died, and my little, I was seven, and my little niece had died as a, she was very small, and so I knew about that. And so the, the teachings of the Buddha were real to me and of interest, and we lived there for about seven years, and then we left and came to live in Perth. And um, I was into the Buddhist society here, And that's where I met Cathy and another beautiful woman called Rose Gervin. And someone else will have to explain the ins and outs of this, but they'd both kind of jumped ship and gone on to zen, like zen. It's like, I'm going to go and sit zen. I remember Rose in particular saying to me, it's like a Japanese ballet. It's very beautiful. You know, it's very quiet. And I thought, yeah, I'll check that out. Because I was feeling a bit, um, to be honest, If you're a lay person and you mix with lots of Buddhist monks, it can be a little bit like, they say this, they say, you know, I went to Thailand and I realised I could have got married and had kids and, you know, had a career, but oh no, that is all rubbish, I became a Buddhist monk. I dedicate my whole life to the Dharma, which is not much use to you if you've got a husband and a kid and a job and you're trying to make your way in the world. And so it was kind of like, "Mm, yeah, well, I'm not a monastic, but are they telling me stuff that means a lot to me as, you know, like my marriage was on the rocks by then, for example, even though John was a lovely person, we were so wrong for each other. And um, so the Buddhist talks that were very conventional weren't really singing to me. So I lobbed up to then where Ross was there. He wasn't Roshi then, but it was in a little house in Claremont. And the main thing I liked was the people. It was like, these are my tribe. I like these people where sort of Ross was a musician and a lot of people who were like uni people and we'd go and have coffee and I mean I took to Zen as a thing the ideas and the form and the practice but I also just liked the sangha. I was like yeah these could be my people and so that's how I came to Zen and at a certain point I took my, I took Rakisu with John Tarrant and that's basically saying I am a Zen student, like I take this on as my path and my name was Ocean Voice, which I think we helped to create our own names, but I I I was not a very good primary school teacher, and I had by now become a writer, and I was writing teenage books, so Ocean Voice suited that, and that is that. So, let's see now. So... I have two paths. I have the Zen path, but I also have the insight tradition path. And that really came about because, I mean, there's just way too many things I can tell you. But at a certain point, I was no longer married to John, my lovely Australian husband. I was now married to Paul, who was a New Zealander, and we went back to New Zealand. So we'd been Zen for like at least eight years, and I was the Tenzo, and it was like my thing. I'm a Zen person, and I I sit Zazen, and this is my path. And funnily enough, we ended up in a place called Nelson, a small town in the South Island of New Zealand. And what are the chances that there would actually be a Zen teacher there? But for probably, I'd say, personality. I, and you have to, this is one thing, people have to make their own path. You have to go, is this my teacher, and is this my path, and what works for me? We're all doing that. You're all, you know, some are Christian, some are Hindu, some are Buddhist, some are Tibetan Buddhist, some are going, because students are... You, you find what is the way for you to go forward, and and I felt I really like this person. Mary Yates is a terrifically good person. She's a personal friend, but I don't think she's my Zen teacher. But my good friend Colleen, who is also a Zen student, we went to other retreats. We drove down the South Island, and we did you know an Insight retreat, or we went to Wellington, and you just took what you could get. And so I realised that. It's sort of a, a two thing for me. I'm both an Australian and a New Zealander. I've lived half my life in each place and I've come and gone and I'm a citizen of both places. And then both of these paths mean something to me. So and it's it's I think probably easier if you just pick one and stick to it. But there are other people like Subana Subana, who is a Roshi and also practices in the insight tradition. And really for me, when I actually sit on the cushion, there's no separation. I sit there on my bum with things arising and passing away, thoughts and feelings and sounds. And the wisdom and um, teaching that Ross gives to me is precious beyond measure. And there's no, I'm not sitting there thinking, oh, what should I do? Because what I learn in the Vipassana is a very simple practice. They're more or less the same. It's not like one teacher's telling me you have to do a thousand prostrations and another teacher's telling me another thing. So these two paths, there are differences, obviously. They're culturally different, and they, you know, I mean, Ross could give a talk about this. They they have a lot of differences, but in essence, I, I find no conflict there with my practice about... It's more for me a bit about language. So as I've told you, I love Zen. I love the sitting. I love you guys. I love the simplicity and the poetry and all those things. But sometimes the Zen language doesn't speak to me. If it's something that Tung Shan said, like even sometimes my mind doesn't understand it, the more esoteric things. It's just a thing with language and me and my own intellect. But then some of the insight teachers, if they're talking about, yeah you know, love or hatred or what to do with addiction, because there's a lot of addiction in my family. So some of those teachers in that tradition, they're bringing in a bit more psychology and a bit more about what the amygdala does. And so there's a language there that sometimes speaks to me. And also, I suppose, the psychological, because I neglected to tell you, but I suppose it's of some relevance. Two times in my life, I've completely fallen off the edge of the universe in terms of good mental health. And one of them was in my 20s when I was, basically all this tragedy had happened to me. And as I said, my answer was do lots of drugs. Well, if you've got an unstable personality and you're doing lots of acid and pot and alcohol, it's not a good look. And I had this period in my life where I became very speedy. And then I just went, and I didn't go into hospital or anything. I was basically like, didn't speak for about a year. And I just kind of carried on in the world, like people looked after me and was actually in, I said I was in a community, we had a road show that summer and I was like this completely lost banana in a road show, you know, travelling New Zealand with a band. And it was, I think when I met you, when my mother died, I suddenly thought, you have to at least act normal, like you have to pick yourself up and pretend you're normal, you're not that normal, but like get a grip. And so... I did that, and that worked pretty well, but then at another point in my life, probably about eight years ago, I was living in New Zealand, and everything fell in a hole. My marriage, I lost, like, we sold our house, I lost my garden, I left Nelson, I left New Zealand, I left my family. I went to live in Perth, where I had, like, people I knew, and my son lived here, but I just, again, sort of, I didn't have a like we talk about not self but you have to have some kind of a stable self first just an ordinary old get up, have your breakfast, pay your tax, you know, know how to operate and for some of us at some times that can be shaky and yeah, I've realised Buddhism, we have an idea that if I sit hard and try and be virtuous it'll save me from certain things, well it doesn't, it doesn't save me from grief when people you love die, you will grieve. It doesn't matter how long you've sat on your cushion or how much you've read. This is part of being human. That we, when people we love or pets we love or or we see refugees in Syria, we will feel a lot of pain around that, and there's no escape from that. And um, and also, if you do have a tendency to mental illness, you you know, I know lots of other Buddhist teachers have had you know bad patches with depression, so you have to. I'm saying, I've had to take care of myself on a very basic level and know that I'm probably never gonna go and do a three month retreat. I just wouldn't risk it. I, I can do Zazen kai's, and I can sit every day and I read the Dharma and I listen to Buddhist teachings, but it's probably good for me to kind of keep my feet on the earth and not do anything too, too unusual. Like I've got heaps of quotes here. I'm just gonna get out my watch and see how we're going for time. So because I did collect a few quotes for you, and, and we're going to segue all over the place now, guys. Um, I'm just going to read you, read you a few of these quotes that I gathered up. So, so that's a bit of the life story. So what have I... I thought to myself, would it, yeah, it would have been easier if said Ross had said, what's the Dharma in your life recently? So recently, I guess I've been working with um, Zen Koan. There's nothing I dislike. So how do we work with all the stuff in our life that we don't really like? Sherry Huber, who's a woman Zen teacher, says, Anything you cannot accept or allow will be a problem. Aim to widen the circle, expand the scope of what you are prepared to experience, allow and accept in the moment. Can we allow life to be just as it is? Can we truly, as Aitken Roshi suggests, stop seeking better accommodation? Stop kidding ourselves that somewhere, somehow, we'll get it all under control. Can we trust and accept the way things are, knowing that whatever is happening, this is just the way it is for now? Can we really examine and be true to the fact that greed, hatred and ignorance arise endlessly and live our vow to abandon them? This is a 24-7 job, and as Pema Chodron reminds us, just return to the present moment with kindness and keep on doing this until you die. So it sounds really easy, doesn't it? It sounds like super duper easy to do that. And we all know it's not that easy. But I just did think of a couple of examples of from my own life that I could share with you about widening the circle or, or um, how could I say... widening the circle or... The Dalai Lama, when asked, you know, how's your practice? He said, 40 years, I think I can see a little improvement. So here's two examples from my life where I think that all these years of sitting, never attaining deep samadhi, never having great awakenings, but just sitting daily, because I forgot to tell you, at at what Buddha Dharma, some quite important teachers came to do 10-day retreats. One was Ajahn Samadho. I remember he had bad feet and they had to go and do foot massages on him. And also Joseph Goldstein. And I was the cook at that stage. And when Joseph left, he came up to thank the cook because everyone loves the cook. And he put his arm around me and said, um, sit every day. It's like, oh, my God, Joseph Goldstein told me I have to sit every day. But I kind of have <laughs> ever since. Oh, he told me to, so maybe I better do it. And I'll tell you, if you're new to meditation, you'll struggle for the first 20 years. But after that, <laughs> you kind of get to like it. And you go, oh, yeah, I get to meditate now. Get to lie down on my bed in the afternoon and do loving kindness for myself it becomes more of a pleasure yeah. so yeah, the two examples I was going to give you of thinking, so what would the point of all this be like, why do we sit, and someone that I had quoted in there said we sit to make a difficult situation better you know, it will people will die, we will get sick and die, you know, it will be cold when we want it to be hot, so but if we practice we can be more in touch with that and we can widen the circle and So these were the two examples. One would be, Lizzie, where's Lizzie? Lizzie comes into this. So Lizzie and I are with these people who play Scrabble. So I went to Lizzie's house maybe a year ago with these other friends to play Scrabble. And Lizzie had made beautiful foods and afternoon tea. And um, there's about six of us there, my friend Gilda, and these two rather lovely people who are Sannyasins, And I mean, I have nothing against Sannyasins, but they can be a little bossy, I think especially when they're German. Anyway, so we were tra- we were, sorry, German people. We were trying to work out what we were going to do, how we were going to do it. Like, are we going to eat the food now? Are we going to play Scrabble now? And the, most of us thought, let's start playing Scrabble, have the afternoon tea later. But the slightly bossy German woman thought, no, we have the food now. And she made us put all the food onto the table. And I was sitting there thinking... Well, that makes a little sense, because we're about to try and play Scrabble on the table, so then we took all the food off the table. Mm-hmm. Lizzie was starting to look a bit white around the girls by now. And um, and I just can remember thinking, I don't really like it. Like, I don't like this. I could feel it in my body and mind. This is not going according to my plan. Mm-hmm. And it was actually probably more than that, if you're a psychologist. I don't like chaos. I had chaos when I was a kid. I didn't know if Dad was going to come home. Happy and cheerful and quoting the poets... Or completely nuts and throw his dinner out the window and drag my mother around the floor by the hair. So I don't like chaos. I like it. We're having afternoon tea now, and then we're doing that. <laughs> and so I just sat there thinking, yeah, this doesn't suit me. But formally, I would have really wanted to go home. I would have just thought, I don't like it, and I really don't like it. And I possibly would have said I had a headache and gone home. But I was able to draw the circle wide enough to go, yeah, I don't like it, and that's Okay. And that might sound like nothing, but it was actually something for me. It was like, yep, I can just be okay with when I'm not okay. And another, this is very current, today I was babysitting my granddaughter, and she's four. And I'd made her a little voucher for her birthday saying uh, treats. And one of them was we were going to go to the beach and have a La Paletta ice cream, and we've done that. And one of the vouchers said, go and buy boots. So we went out, it was not raining, her parents were not there, I was looking after her and we went walking through puddles and her gumboots leaked and I thought, right, go and buy boots. So we hopped in my car and we went to Big W and we did shoe shopping and um, we found some gumboots and my daughter-in-law was texting me, she was saying, Sam, that's my son, he finds some of the gumboots smell really rubbery. Don't get those ones, I'm Trying to smell the gumboots. <laughs> Don't buy the ones that smell like Chinese poison, okay. And then Etta fell in love with uh, some little red mushroom shoes. One, uh, This is suffering. One pair was too small and one pair was too big, but she really wanted them, so... We'd... Bought the non-smelly gumboots and the little red shoes that looked like mushrooms that were slightly too big, but you grow into them. Then we bought this little other pair of shoes that were like little black boots to wear to kinder that. I said, "Do you think they're classy?" "Oh, yeah, they're classy." So we had home thirty-six bucks worth of shoe And when we got home, and her mother came, we had them hidden. And we, later wanted to, you know, we had to have them hidden. Nina was particularly unresponsive. She basically went. Mm. Mm, 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 like. <laughs> there was no, oh you lovely grandmother <laughs> There was nothing of that There was sort of like, these ones might fit and those ones And she'd gone and bought ugly boots and there was, I mean it sounds funny, but I was actually quite hurt I was like, oh, just spent money and went shoe shopping And you're kind of crabby I could feel it in my stomach, I was feeling like I'm a bit upset about this And I went into the bathroom, I could feel like I could be hurt, I was hurt I could be a bit angry, I was a bit angry And then I thought Give it up. Like I just had that opportunity to go, just give it up. Does it doesn't matter? She'll either love the shoes or not. You and Edda had a good time. They might take them all back to a Big W tomorrow. Give it up. And go and give her a big hug and sort of go, okay, there's the docket, what are we having for dinner? It was it was a practice moment for me and it sounds so small, but our life is made of small, isn't it? That's all we got. We go through the day and we you know, we either get we either if you're a psychologist, we're either creating neural pathways that go there into negati- negativity and gloom and anger, and you know, I'm right and it's all about me and oh, how unhappy I can be about everything, or we just go, well, cela be, this is the way of the world. Suffering, imper- how important will that be next week? Tomorrow, when I'm dying, we'll like, go, oh, Nina was rude to me about the shoes, I don't think so. Alrighty, so that's widening the circle. Um, This is a quote by Barry Magid, who is a Buddhist teacher. He's a Zen teacher and he's a psychoanalyst and he's in New York and I really like him. And he says, Delusion is the belief in the overriding importance of our own predicament. Delusion, the belief in the overriding importance of one's own predicament. And I think that's about the um, second of those things. Yeah, the not-self part. Like... We think there's a self, and on one level there is a self. There's me, and there's you, and there's Ross, and we are self, something that comes together, moving body of atoms that we call a self. But that I, me, mine, it, it's a lot bigger than that. It's ocean, and it's crickets, and it's other people, and it's galaxies, and it's the fact that this civilization may come and go and end, and it's not really about me, 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 me and my stuff. So a bit more of this very magic stuff. Just sitting means just that, that just endlessly goes against the grain of our need to fix, transform, and improve ourselves. The paradox of our practice is that the most effective way of transformation is to leave ourselves alone. The more we let everything just be what it is, the more we relax into an open, attentive awareness of one moment after another, Just sitting leaves everything as it is. He also advises to stop asking, how am I doing, or am I there yet? This goal-oriented achievement model does not have a place in our spiritual practice. And Tony Packer talks about it, she's another Zen teacher. The unmasking of the self that is nothing but masks, images, memories of past experiences, Fears, hopes, and the ceaseless demand to be something or become somebody. Or as Mary Ridwin says, we're always trying to fix the me that isn't there. (laughs) And another beautiful insight teacher called Gloria Tarania: what if there isn't any right way to be? What if the way that we are is just fine? What if the only problem is we think there's a problem? So yeah, I'm gonna read you another couple of things, then we're gonna play a little game. This is um, by a guy called Jeff Foster. A Yogi of Broken Dreams. Don't worship a bearded man in the sky or a graven image in a book. Worship the in-breath and the out-breath, the winter breeze caressing your face, the morning rush on the underground, the simple feeling of being alive, not knowing what is to come. See God in the eyes of a stranger, heaven in the broken and the ordinary. Worship the ground on which you stand. Make each day a dance with tears in your eyes as you behold the divine in everything, every moment. See the absolute in all things relative and let them all call you crazy. Let them laugh and point. You are a yogi of traffic jams and discarded apple cores, Aloneness and impossibly blue winter skies, a yogi of broken dreams, mad with truth and devotion and inexplicable joy, and you cannot be saved now. Oh, yeah, this one's just too good. This is Natalie Goldberg. What was then, anyway? There was you and me living and dying, eating cake. There was sky, there were mountains, rivers, prairies, horses, mosquitoes, justice, injustice, cucumbers. So yeah, it's a big old world. So yeah, so this is the part that we blame him for, because I thought we could do something interactive, and this is sort of homage, see I I speak French, homage. (laughs) This is for Ross, because one of the things I loved about Ross, apart from all the other things, was that he had these interesting ideas when... He still does but when we first met we took a go down and drink coffee, I don't even drink coffee but I wanted to hang with the guys that drank coffee <laughs> and, um, and he talked about um, Jung and Synchronicity and John Cage and he miraculously got funding, I've probably got this a bit wrong, from the ABC or somewhere to do some experimental music where there was someone in Berlin playing part of the music and someone in Adelaide that it was like this, could there be a symphony when people were playing music all over the <clears> world not hearing each other so I decided that I would try and do something with this idea. And so one of the things about me is that in my family, there were two sisters who were artists. Robin and Venya are proper artists, and they go to art school, but Bridget is a writer and Judy is an occupational therapist. So, But really, I wanted to be the artist. So part of my, my practice, my Buddhist practice over the years, is I make books. I make books, and in the books... I write down Buddhist things and I do pictures, you know, collage or door pictures. And I'm collecting, I'm collecting wisdom that I've found. And it's just been something that's kept me happy and kept me sane. And I've got many of these. And I've even got a list of when I die, who gets them. Like one for <laughs> Kathy. <laughs> yes. So we have here a few books. And today, Etta and I made some bookmarks. So I'm just going to come around and randomly give... Six people, a book. And what I'd like you to do is open the book and stick a bookmark in it. And then I will read you something from that page on the book. Because we'll see how the experimental works out for us tonight. Because I do believe in synchronicity. Every morning when I get up and I go back to bed with tea and toast, I, I open one of these before I read the New Yorker or whatever else, I decide I'm going to be reading with my breakfast. And it always does feel like whatever I open up is what I needed to hear that day. There is something in that, I believe. Call it magical thinking or happy woo woo. I don't care what you call it, I believe in it. So, journey, the willingness to meet the here and now, right here, right now, present, aware, attentive, accepting. Don't waste your time trying to change anything. Then there was a little poem that I think I got out of a fortune cookie or something. It says, happiness is when you make some tea and stuff a big round cake in your mouth. What could be more happiness than that? Maintain a carefree heart, the dance of meditation, the dance of moving ourselves inwardly, moving light and joyous, freer, happier, wiser, living, breathing, evolving. Joyous survival, open to the constant flow, just this. Not me, not mine. Well, this one's scary. It's got two bookmarks and I don't know how that happened. No, this page, or well, we'll have both of them. So I read a quote by Deepa Ma, who was a beautiful little Indian lady who was said to be enlightened. She lived in a little... Plat in Calcutta and people like Joseph Goldstein used to go and visit her and she said the daughters of the Buddha are fearless and I wrote my own response the daughters of the Buddha are joyous and then it says over there with a picture of Ramdas at a teapot live graciously and this one oh, I love this page I collected all these tiny little pictures of birds I really enjoying doing that page little collage of empty phenomena rolling on, all things arising and passing away in the spaciousness of the present moment, and it, it, it can be very scary to look at that, to look at the fact that it's all changing all the time, but it can also be incredibly liberating, what is there to hold on to really, if it's all flowing, what is it to... To be fearful of if you can respond with a joyous with a joyous heart. This one's got lots of words on it, so I won't read all of them, but I'll keep finding. Persistence. I drank away the hangover and the green tea went down like warm autumn rain. This is a poem not by me. Ah, the day and the hours when the light is within all things and the sweetness of tears comes easily. Then it is good to have a simple dinner of soup and bread and go to bed early having achieved nothing like that. (laughs) Patience, abide with the restlessness of my own energy and let things evolve at their own speed. So there was just something I didn't write down here about letting things evolve, and Ross has been like encouraging us to do this. Immediately do nothing when there's a crisis. Immediately do nothing. It's very Taoist in a way, like the least action, let, because it's very gracious to just let the whole thing unfold the way it wants to unfold. And I remember my first husband, John. If there was ever, if he ever had an illness or anything went wrong in his body, he'd say. If you give it a week, it'll probably be fine. Well, obviously not with cancer or a broken leg, but most things, like a headache or a mouth ulcer or a vague stomach pain or a, you know, give it a week and it'll be gone. And you find that is true with most difficulties, actually. If you just leave them alone, most of them in a week will have sorted themselves out without any attention from you. Very restful. Okay. Better to let the entire game play out by itself. Let our actions be in tune with the flow of life. Immediately do nothing. Or as Winnie the Pooh says, The soul travels slowly. Rivers know this. There is no hurry. We shall get there one day. So i just finish by reading you a couple of last things. One would be another poem which I write, which I think in a way does sum up my Buddhist practice at this stage of my life, if I can find it. Hmm, I can't find it, I'll have to try and say it off my brain. All your pretty dresses won't save you, you can't wriggle out of it. The suffering of this floating world will continue to present itself. Just keep on being the Buddha. White flowers in your open arms. And this is also something I wrote, which fantastic book. If you want to give someone a gift, it's called Women of a Certain Age. Support your local press. It's a Fremantle press book and it's Basically, a whole lot of different women, including Indigenous woman and a politician, and someone young, somebody who thought they were going to die when they were young. And it's about women of a certain age. But I got this wonderful email from a man who said, "I really liked your book, even though I'm a bloke." I, I imagine his girlfriend had it by the bed. <laughs> He's a music producer, Bark and Gecko, something gecko. Yeah. Robin, someone. It's like, oh, he's a bloke, he liked it. Anyway, so I contributed to this book and and the topic I chose was relationships. And partly it was because I've entered into a relationship at the wise old, unwise age of however old I am. But I'm talking in the article about the fact that we're all in relationship with ourselves, with the world, as Thich Nhat Hanh says, it's into being, everything's in relationship. No rain, no flowers, You know, no cloud, no, no cup of tea. It's all in relationship. And um, so I talk a bit, a bit about this, about tr- trying to be in relationship with other people and be in relationship with ourselves and be in relationship with the planet and what it needs from us and all of that. I'll just read you a couple of bits because we're nearly on time. read you a couple of bits. There is no escape from the bump and grind of this life. We are born, we live, we die. All of us headed for the boneyard, no one exempt. No, I don't know if that's the best bit. I'm going to skip that bit. Straight to the end. Writers, what can you do? So there was just a little thought I had about how we're always creating these selves and they're kind of um, artificial constructs. You know, and you can even have it as a game with yourself. Like, what self am I creating today? Am I the wounded artist? Am I the person who can't cope? Am I the thwarted grandmother? And they're just constructs, and that can help loosen the sort of, I'm this, and it has to be that way. And so, yeah. I wrote this a long time ago. Sometimes I think I'm so tired because I'm a woman in a time and place where no one knows who they are anymore. That I'm utterly worn out from thrashing around amongst so many discourses, all my strength is gone. For I am multiple, fractured, many. I'm fat lady, thin lady, mother, lover, lone ranger, student, suburban housewife, consumer, ecologist, radical, conformist, hippie, yuppie, feminist, wife, shy girl, loudmouth, hedonist. And that's just a few of me and I am tired. 30 years later, I'm still tired, I'm all those things and more. Grandmother, elder, Zen student, artist, sister, aunt, cook, friend, wise woman, fool, human being in relationship with self and other, sky, tree, planet, child, ocean, teapot, moon and star. So what have I learned along the way? As much as possible to stop buying things to live the simple life i proclaim with a spirit of contentment thus aligning my behaviors with my deepest values to enjoy my life of divine ordinariness to treat those i meet kindly because we are all struggling although some disguise it better than others i have learned that to be human is to be always in a state of flux and if i can live as change as grace My heart will be happier despite global warming, shark attacks, terrorism and child poverty, despite my bung knee and my tendency towards melancholy. I aim to act for the wider good while realizing that my jurisdiction is limited. I try to be harmonious with my friends, even and especially when it proves difficult. I've realized it's not too late to have a happy childhood because despite my own ragged past, I now get to play runaway horses and (coughs) magic castles with my granddaughter. There's not much percentage in looking back, regretting old loves, nursing ancient hurts, wiser to leave the past alone. Again and again, I farewell everything, including my ideas about myself, staying current, inhabiting this moment, each moment as the one and only real thing, laying full claim to it, this precious, difficult, dizzying existence.